Take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. If you have a Bible with you, hopefully you do. If not, maybe, or you have one on your phone, uh, turn it on, get the app out. Hebrews chapter 11. We started a series of messages last week um, on the persecuted church and on persecution in general and how we should respond if persecution comes our way. And and here's the, the basic understanding that we have, is that right now at this moment, believers in America, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ in America, are not experiencing persecution. Now, we may be receiving some, um, people may look at us a little differently, or they may talk about us a little bit, but real persecution we have not experienced yet in America on a wide-scale basis. And for some of us, talking about this seems almost odd. Like, why would we talk about this? This is something somebody else has to deal with. But we are talking about it to be prepared how we should live. And here's the truth. Here's the the underlying current for me in the midst of this series. If we are to behave in a certain way when we are persecuted for our faith, shouldn't we behave in a similar fashion when we're not? And so if the persecuted church is called upon to be bold and loving and compassionate in the midst of persecution, how much more should those of us who have freedom to say things about Jesus live boldly and with compassion and generosity? And so we're in the midst of this series talking about the persecuted church and persecution. And here's the way I want to start today. I want to ask this question and then kind of review a little bit last week and then go into Hebrews 11 where we're going to be today. When you hear the word Christian, those of you that are followers of Jesus in this room, those of you that claim to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian, when you hear that phrase, what do you hope people think? When they say Christians, what do you hope people think that means? Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus here today, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're here with a spouse or you're just here because uh, for some reason you wanted to check it out or somebody invited you. What do you think of when you hear the word Christians? What are the words that come to mind? What are the descriptions that come to mind? What does it mean when somebody says, you know, I started a new job three or four weeks ago and went in and talked to balls and man, I just found out he's a Christian. Or I had some people move two doors down from me. I went to take them some cookies and say hello to them. And you know what? They're Christians. What does that mean? I, uh, in light of what happened on Tuesday, there were some people in our country on all sides of the political spectrum, a little surprised. Right? Y'all are acting like that didn't happen, right? A little surprised, okay? And so about Thursday or Friday, uh, I can't remember which one of the um, Eastern Seaboard newspapers it was, but I think it was, it may have been the New York Times or the Washington Post. They ran a poll. You know those polls you do online, like which character are you from Friends? Or Y'all are just looking at me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, like, which, uh, which muggle are you or Harry Potter character? Okay, they ran a quiz that was, how out of touch are you? Okay, so how out of touch are you with the rest of the country? Because, you know, one of the big things that came out is the coasts don't understand the middle, all right? Like, they're disconnected from the country. And so I thought, this would be fun. I'll take it. And it was strange questions like, did you grow up in a family where both parents had a college education? You answered yes or no. And they gave you a score based on it, okay? But what was interesting to me, there were two or three questions that were just funny to me. One was, um, what does Branson mean? And have you ever been to Branson? Like, 
I've never been to Branson, but I know people that have, right? I know what Branson, Missouri is. I know where that is. But one of the questions was, this was a legitimate question on there. Do you know anyone that claims to be an evangelical Christian? And I thought, well, what do they think about when they hear that phrase? Last week we started the series, and here's was kind of the idea behind the starting the series where we did. We started with the founder of Christianity, Jesus. We said, well, what would people say about him and his followers? If we're supposed to be followers of Christ, what would they say about him? What would they say about us? And what we found out is last week, whether you agreed with him or not, whether you understood what he was doing or not, whether you agreed with the first century followers or not, whether you believed that they were right, there were a few words that they would have used to describe those people. They would have called them fearless, generous, and confident. Remember we talked about Jesus last week. If you weren't here last week, this week sometime, our, the, our media coordinator has been on vacation. She will have the video up. If you weren't here last week, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to last week because it sets up the whole series. But if you were here last week, we talked about Jesus, that he set his face towards Jerusalem. And even though he knew death was coming, that he got on a donkey and rode through Main Street and said, here I am, riding directly into his death. He was fearless. We talked about those quotes about the early Christians that said that when they faced death, they faced it without fear. And the main point, the whole point of the sermon last week, the one point we wanted to drive home was, is that uncertainty is unavoidable. But being afraid is optional. Uncertainty in our lives personally, uncertainty in our lives in general is unavoidable. We cannot avoid uncertainty. But we can avoid being afraid. So they were fearless. They were generous. If you listen, if you even read some of the descriptions of Christians from non-Christians of that day and time and from Jesus, you hear about their giving, about them taking care of each other, about the way they surrounded one another and they did not care about what they had. They gave unto one another so that no one was in need. The idea was that when you are fearless in the face of death, when you have confidence that this world is not all that there is, you really are no longer tied to the things, to the prestige, to the titles, to the materials of this world and so you freely give of what you have to help others because this isn't what matters and they were confident some of the original writings say that they were sure about the things that really matter you see jesus was not fragile he was not the picture that hung in Sunday school classes all across this country of meek and mild, holding the lamb, all gentle, a halo around his face. He was a man who was fearless in the face of death, who was confident about what God had called him to do. And his followers should be as well. And I read those descriptions and I see what's being said about us in the media, but not just in the media, the truthfulness about hearing how Christians themselves are acting today. People that I see on my Facebook profile, on Twitter, people that I know and talk to in life. And the questions that I ask myself is, how did we go from being fearless and generous and confident to not? In the early church, Christians were irresistible. People came to find out they didn't agree with them. They didn't like them necessarily, but they said there's something about them that we can't resist. Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. And here's the amazing thing. People who did not agree with him, who did not like, didn't want anything like him, they flocked to him. 
And we seem to push people away so easily. It led me to this very deep theological question. Not really, but it's a question. What's wrong with us? How do we get where we are? How do we fix what's happening? I think there are some answers for us in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is uh, a book. Uh, Chapter 11 is a book of Hebrews, is a book written to people that were Jewish Christians, people that were Jewish who came to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And what happened is, not long after they became believers in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they started trying to live as Jesus told them to live, and they found that life did not go exactly like they thought it would be. And so they started to get persecuted. They started to get attacked. They started to get arrested. Friends and family were disappearing from them. They were shunned from the marketplace. People said, we no longer want to associate with you. The Roman government tries to shut them down. The Roman government starts killing friends and people that were in their churches. And they start to ask the question, is this worth it? Is it all worth it? And if it's worth it, is it working? Is this Christianity thing going to make it? You see, we have the benefit of the perspective of being here 2,000 years later, gathering together and could say to them, yeah, it's going to work. But you have to realize they didn't have that perspective. They didn't know. Talk about secret church. These are some people that may have been in the catacombs, that may have been underneath Rome, worshiping together just so they didn't get caught. It's easier for us on this side to say, you know what? Yeah, it's going to work. Yeah, it's going to be okay. Of course it makes a difference. I was thinking about this this weekend. Um, Eli's on the youth retreat. Um, and so um, Luke, you know, when, in our house, when we lose a child for a weekend, like, for some reason, we think we have to add one back. And so Luke had a friend from school over Friday night. The girls had a movie they wanted to watch. The friend from school was downstairs. And so Susan and I had a time when we could watch a movie, which is rare. And so we went through, and one of the things that we like to watch, the kind of movies that we like to watch a lot of times when we're together, are based on true story movies, you know, stories that have a semblance of reality. And so we watched a movie called Joy. Anybody seen Joy? One, maybe. All right. So here's the thing. I can tell you all about it. Y'all don't know if it's true or not, right? Joy, and here's why I am shocked that none of you have seen this. It is the true story of the woman who invented the miracle mop. Still not interested, I see. All right. So Joy is a story of the woman who won the who invented the who won the miracle who invented the miracle mop. Okay, the miracle mop where you don't have to you just pull it up and it's you know it. Rinses it, never rinse, rings itself out, and all that kind of stuff. Right, I can tell you a lot about the Miracle Mop now because I watched the movie. But so we started watching this movie, and it's kind of a depressing movie to start. Jennifer Lawrence plays the lead role. She was up for an Oscar for Bradley Cooper's in it, uh, Robert De Niro's in it, like big big time actors and actresses. And so we're watching it, and it's kind of depressing at the beginning. And we realize we get the name of the woman, and so independently of each other, without saying anything to each other, we both realize later that both of us about the same time had gone to Wikipedia to find out what happened to this woman. Anybody else ever done that? How many of you here are people that like to look up and know the whole plot of a movie before you watch it? I see the bag of hands back there, right? So we look up Joy and we read everything about her. And so we know this thing works. Spoiler alert. It works, all right? And so we're watching the movie and we're watching it and we're thinking, oh, it's all right. She's almost gone bankrupt. She's going she's gonna to sell millions of those things. 
Like she's going to get on uh, the um, QVC. She, she's like the biggest seller in the history of QVC. All right. So you see all this stuff that you get from watching a movie. Right. And so I'm, we're watching it. But here's the thing. As I'm watching it, I never for a minute worried she wasn't going to make it. Because you know why? Because I knew she made it. Right. But she didn't know that. Like there's a scene in the movie where she walks up to a businessman that's trying to um, harass her and take lots of money from her and going to sue her. And she walks into a hotel room and she confidently goes off about what's happening and tells him that it's going to change and she's not doing this. And she lays down the law and he finally gives in to her. Here's the thing. When she started the meeting, I knew it was going to work because there are only like eight minutes left in the movie. And, you know, we had to finish this thing up pretty quickly. And so I knew it was going to work. But she didn't know that going in. This all has a point, by the way. I'm getting there. The people that are hearing in Hebrews what is being written to them didn't know it was going to work. The author of Hebrews is writing saying, it's worth it and it works. And he gives them all this stuff at the beginning about Jesus being greater, Jesus being higher, Jesus being better than anything they could imagine. And then in chapter 11, he pivots for a minute to say, and I want to remind you of people that have trusted in God even when it didn't make sense. And then I'm going to call you to action. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now faith, it's one of the rare places in all of Scripture where we are given a definition of something that is of major theological importance. Like this is what faith is. And so we pay attention when that happens. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Faith is believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. It is saying, I'm going to trust in it even though I don't see it, even though I can't touch it, even though I know it's not here. It's the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. I heard one pastor this week say that every single person in this room has probably experienced faith like this before. Because this isn't just faith in the Bible. This is faith in general. When you trust in something you don't yet see. He said, for instance, if you ever go to work at a company and they tell you you're going to get paid in two weeks, you work for two weeks on faith. Right? You're just trusting that in two weeks when you get done, there's going to be a paycheck. But you don't have any proof of that. You don't have it in hand. They don't give it to you and say, hold on to this for two weeks and then cash it. It's you're going to get it in two weeks, but you're going to put in two weeks of work before you do. You know who's not acting on faith in that instance? The employer. Because you're going to have to prove it before they show it. What faith is, is I'm trusting God no matter what. And he says... Our ancestors, the people that he's about to talk about, the people he's going to tell us about, the Old Testament heroes, won God's approval by it. It means that they got up every morning and they said, God's promised this. I'm going to live my life as if it has already happened. God said it would happen. I'm going to determine my steps by I believe that God is truthful. Look at what verse 13 says. These, and he names several of them. He names Noah, he names Enoch, he names Abel, he names Abraham, he names Sarah. He says all of these died in faith without having received the promises. This is, what, this is very, very important, okay? See, there's this movement out there in Christianity, people that are claiming Christ, that will say if you will just trust in the Lord, you can have your best life now. 
You can have everything right now like you want it. You can have it good. It's going to be great. But the history of our faith is that faith sometimes doesn't get rewarded here and now. And he says, Moses, Abraham, Sarah, David, they died without having received the promises. They never got the paycheck. Think about Abraham. What was God's promise to Abraham? God said that he would do what with Abraham? He would build a nation. And how many kids would he have? More than the stars, right? And so he says, Abraham, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and I'm going to build a nation out of you and your children are going to be more numerous than the sands, more numerous than the stars. And everybody on the planet will be blessed through you, Abraham, one single man in the desert by yourself. And Abraham died and that hadn't happened. Think about David. God promised David, David's one of our biggest heroes, God promised David that he would establish a throne forever in David's family. And when David died, you may or may not know this, but when David died, his family was in shambles. One of his sons had been killed trying to overtake his dad's throne in a civil war that sprung out to try and keep his dad on the throne. And the son he entrusted it to would tear the nation apart within one generation. And yet they lived year after year after year after year after year after year just believing the promises were just as true. I'm just going to tell you, it's a little convicting for me because this is just me being honest. Sometimes I pray on Monday for something to happen and if it hasn't happened by Thursday, I get pretty upset. Like, Man, I woke up this morning and I must have done something to my big toe because it hurts. God, I need you to take that pain away. And by Thursday, I'm like, God, there may be bigger things going on in the universe right now, but my toe's still hurting here. Now, that may be a silly kind of thing, but it, it may not be. If your big toe hurts, your big toe hurts, right? And these people live for decades without seeing it. And in case we think, well, they just didn't get a few things. No, no, it was, it, was, it was more than that. Look, look, it tells them here, they saw them from a distance. I love that. It said, they lived as if the promises were true. They saw them from a distance, greeted them, confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents of the earth. They said, listen, God's promises are true. He's going to make it happen. Even if I don't see it, my destination is in heaven with him. It's not here on this earth. So even if I lose everything on this earth, I'm trusting God to do it right, to make it right. Look down at verses 36 and following. He gets through listing all these great people, and then he just does the others category, the at all, the and others category, etc., etc. category. Others, he says, suffered mocking and flogging. If you were here last week, we went through flogging. We're not going to do it again. Horrific. Even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, large boulders thrown at them until they died. They were sawn in two, not like the magician's trick, like really. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. We're going to skip that for a minute. I'm going to come back. 
wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The author of Hebrews is saying, all these people had faith. They didn't see the promise fulfilled. They didn't see it taken care of. In fact, some of them were killed. Some of them were flogged. Some of them were imprisoned. Some of them were wearing the skins of sheep and goats because they didn't have money to buy clothes. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They were wandering in the deserts and the mountains in dens and caves of the earth. And it's almost like in the middle of that, as he's writing these words, as he's writing them down, as he's telling people what to write, they're in the midst of it. They're like, I cannot believe that they went through this. This world is not worthy of what they did. Now, when I hear some of the stories, like, I mean, if, if you are interested in some of the stories that you've heard the last two weeks from Open Doors, just go to Open Doors USA. You can find them on um, YouTube, and they've got tons of content on there. Now, when I hear some of those stories, my thought is the same thought as this author. This world is not worthy of them. One of the things that I see when I read it, one of the things I see when I read Hebrews 11 is this, that there is a version of Christianity that elicits heroic living where people stop and stare. Stop and stare. When you look at the first church, I mean, they were the underdogs. I mean, nobody, nobody thought it was going to make it. I mean, they were the ones that had just come up on the scene. It was a bunch of fishermen from a part of the backwoods area of Jerusalem in Israel. I've said this before, but when you look into Acts, when they say, are these men speaking in our own language? Have you heard their accents? They don't know our language. I've talked about it. It's like when you're a southerner and you go talk to somebody and they uh, deduct 50 points off your IQ because of your accent. These men were completely underdogs. And the world wasn't rooting for them. Nobody's like, man, I really hope they take over the world. I really hope that happens. Over the last few weeks, our world, our nation, has been captured by an underdog. No, I'm not talking about our president-elect. I'm talking about sports. See, I grew up a St. Louis Cardinal baseball fan. From the time I was born until this moment, I loved the Cardinals. My grandfather loved the Cardinals. My dad loved the Cardinals. One of those bonds I have with my grandfather, who I never met, a man who was at Pearl Harbor when they, at Hickam Air Force Base when they bombed it, a man who I thank to this day for the life that he gave to my dad and that eventually came to me. Never met him. But one of the connections I have with him is we still listen to the same radio station to hear Cardinals baseball that he did growing up in Nebraska. Now, I listen a little differently. I don't have a transistor radio under my bed. I've got a phone app that I use. But KMOX out of St. Louis, I listen to. And so over the last few weeks, as the world has become enraptured with that team from Chicago, I just couldn't do it. I went in and told Jeff. Y'all know Jeff Kelly's a huge Chicago Cubs fan. Um, I pray for him daily about that. Um, I went to his office and said, man, I love you. I'm excited for you. I'm so excited for your team. I cannot root for them. And the truth is, if you looked at our nation, there were only two places that weren't rooting for the Cubs. Cleveland and St. Louis. Like I saw Cleveland put out a Twitter and it's like, suddenly we're getting lots of St. Louis fans telling us they hope we win. But the world became enraptured with this underdog story. We love underdogs. 
That was not the world they were brought into as Christians. But yet, they were so bold and passionate about what they were doing that people stopped and took notice. They were so diversified. There was every race imaginable around the table in Jerusalem. They were sharing their food, their clothing, their housing. They were the most generous people they'd ever met. And they just lived with confidence that they'd never seen before. If you read the writings of people that weren't Christians about the Christians in the early century, they say over and over again, we don't agree with them, but we cannot deny there is something about them that we can't turn away from. When's the last time you heard somebody in our culture say, man, I don't agree with them, but man, I hope they're right because they're such good people. Look what it says in verse 39, next verse. And all of these, all those people, all those that were killed, condemned, all of them, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And here's the reason. Since God had provided something better for who? Us. I want you to think about that for a minute. He said all these people lived their lives in faith as if it had already happened. And they did so on a day after day after day basis, never receiving the promises that God gave them. Because God was planning something bigger where Jesus was going to come, where Jesus would die for our sins, where Jesus would be raised again from the dead. And he's doing that for us. They suffered for you. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. He said their task was not complete until we came into faith in Christ. They were looking forward and were faithful. They were looking forward and were faithful. And so why do we look backward and are fearful? Well, the author of Hebrews doesn't leave us there. He gives us a let us. He gives us a application step to this. And we're going to finish with this. We're going to close with this. In Hebrews chapter 12, the next verse, it rolls over. Chapter 12, verse 1, it says, therefore. Now, every year of my, high, of my college and of my seminary life, the people that would teach me my Bible courses would say, anytime there's a therefore in the Bible, you must ask what it is there for. And what this means is here that it goes all the way back to verse or chapter 11 where everything we've talked about in chapter 11, everything we've talked about about these men who were faithful, about these men and women who did what God called them to do, all of that, therefore, based on that, says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, because of the actions that they have taken, because of the faith and bold action, because of the response they gave to an unseen God and His promises, because of the outcomes that they lived through in order that we might be here today trusting in Jesus, seeing Him, understanding Him, because of the witnesses that we have from the first century who gave their lives, from the New Testament people that gave their lives, from the apostles who gave their lives, from the second and third century people that were burned at the stake for their faith, from the Protestant Reformation where people were killed for translating the Bible or declaring that it is by grace through faith that we are saved not of works lest any man should boast even to today where people in syria and iraq and eritrea north korea are being killed for their faith because we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses he says let us now those of you that know this verse or you have it open you obviously can look ahead 
But I would say to you that whatever's coming next is probably pretty important. Right? He's just given us the list of the greatest people of faith in the history of the Bible. And he says, because of what they've done, because of who they are, because of the promises we have, let us. So whatever comes next ought to be important. I don't put it up yet, Wes. Because this is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, based on this cloud of witnesses, let us hide, whine, complain, hoard our resources just in case, put our Bibles in a drawer, build bomb shelters, purchase ammunition, blame the cops, blame the president, blame the teachers, blame another race, blame the mamas, demand our rights, build a wall, tax the rich, rework the tax code, play it safe, find somebody to sue, make America great again, stand together for America, pray Jesus returns so that we won't have to suffer. Does that get everybody? That's not what it says. What it says is, let us throw off everything that keeps us back. Sin, which so easily clings to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. You know what's wrong with us? We've got too much stuff weighing us down. And we no longer are fixing our eyes on Jesus. Imagine what our complaints sound like to the cloud of witnesses we just talked about in Hebrews 11. What's holding you back? What do you need to throw off? What do you need to get rid of? What do you need to shed? What are you putting your hopes in? What are you putting your dreams in? What are you fixing your eyes on? Is it a career? Is it a paycheck? Is it a job? Is it a family you're, you're raising? Is it a, a, a political system? Is it a country? What are your eyes fixed upon? What are your eyes focused on? What are you running towards? We have too many people in our country that have placed their faith, that have placed their trust in something that was never meant to hold the weight of our faith or our trust. Your spouse was never meant to hold all of your dreams and your hopes and your faith and your trust. Your children were never meant from that. You will smother them. Your family, that's not its intention. Your job, that is not what it was created for. A political party was not created for that. Even though they try to say they are, there is only one person that our hopes and our dreams and our lives can be directed towards, and that is Jesus. And when you put your hopes in something that will fail you, when it fails, you have nowhere else to turn. Hebrews 12 says us to run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Listen, I've read lots of persecuted church stories throughout my 15 years of ministry and even before that in seminary and in college. And what always amazes me is something that, really two things, something he said in the video is that persecuted Christians thank God for so much and ask God for so little. And secondly, anytime you hear them talking, all they talk about is fixing their eyes on Jesus. What are your eyes fixed upon? When I think about this passage of Scripture, I think about a story from my days in college. Um, I went to Union University, uh, Baptist College in Jackson, Tennessee. Um, I love Union. I love 
college. I try to tell anybody that even thinks about going anywhere, they ought to go to Union. I teach at Union in Hendersonville, and so Union was a very good experience for me. While I was at Union, I was in a fraternity, and sometimes pastors say that, and you're like, wow, you're in a fraternity? Union fraternities are different, all right? They are the same national fraternities, but they're just different. Our fraternity at Union one year decided that we were going to raise money for St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And the way we were going to do that is we were going to get pledges and then we were going to run from the fraternity house at Union to Memphis to Jackson, Tennessee. That's the kind of decision 20-year-old guys that don't know what they're doing make. Okay. And so we had this whole plan. It was a relay race. Somebody's going to be in a van. We're going to get out. We're going to run. Somebody's going to jump in. Somebody's going to get out. We're going to run. We're going to jump in and out and all that. And then it was decided, you know, when people started really trying, because we couldn't get permission to run on the interstates. Imagine that. They wouldn't let a bunch of fraternity guys drive a van down the interstate and run beside it. All right. So we had to run the backwoods of Tennessee to get to Memphis until the very end when they gave us passage to a certain place. And so then we decided, you know, we can't all do this in a day. So let's split it up. Well, here's what happened. In our fraternity, the guys that came up with this idea were like state champion cross-country runners. Okay? And they all decided to be on the team that was going to deliver the check to St. Jude because they were glory hounds. Not really. Yeah, they were. And so the rest of us, just hope none of them listen to this, all right? And so the rest of us said, well, we'll just run the first leg because we're not in it for the glory. We're just in it for the service of the Lord. No, we were just like... We don't want to be running in downtown Memphis because that's not a cool thing. And so we're in the backwoods of Tennessee. Now, you, I know some of you all think you know backwoods of Tennessee because you've been to Springfield. That's not what I'm talking about, all right? Like, I'm talking about, like, backwoods of Tennessee, all right? Um, and so we're running, and I get in the van with all of the non-runners. Now, I know it shocks you that I'm a part of that group, but that's who I am, all right? And so... I mean, I've heard about people getting like runner's highs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, never happened. All right. And so it comes time for us to run. And what happened is you get out. We, we decided in our van, like we heard stories later, the cross-country champion van running 15 miles at a time. Yeah, that wasn't happening for us. It was a mile. You had to run a mile. All right. And so you got out. Now, you have to realize, too, we're 20-year-old college guys that are, we think we can do anything. Right, without training, without any, like, 5K, mile, yeah, I can do a marathon, no problem. I can just get out there and run it. So it comes my turn. Um, unfortunately, I could not hide in the back of the van long enough. We're riding down the road, by the way, not in, like, we're in a uh, church van that has all the seats taken out. Because there were too many of us to fit on the seats. So, you know, probably, uh, statue of limitations surely has gone from that, all right? And so we're riding down, we'd jump out, we'd run our mile, somebody yell out, somebody got the job of driving, so they never had to run. I don't know how I didn't get that. And yell out, your mile's up, we get back in, okay? And so we're, it comes my turn, and I jump out. And you ever had that moment when you think, okay, I can do this, I'm not real excited about it, but I can do this. And then you start to do it, and then like, you realize, I'm better at this than I thought. Like, that's what happened. Like, I started running. And it was, it, man, the day. It was like yesterday or the day, but like, you know, 70 degrees. It was a fall day like this. Beautiful weather. Just a hint of breeze. And I'm running, and I'm just like, man, this is, this is good, you know. I'm, I'm good. This is good. I'm going to make it. This is going to be awesome. Like, I may go two miles today just to show those guys in the van. I may show them up, all right? And then I hit the wall. Now, 
Marathon runners talk about hitting the wall at mile 12 or 13, okay? I hit it at approximately a quarter mile, all right? <laughs> like it just hit. And so suddenly it started with the side. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Like the side. Like apparently I took it out too fast. Like I just felt too good about it, started out too fast. The side hit and then the shin splints, right? You know, like shin splints. And then I noticed, you know what? A minute ago I think I was running on some nice level ground. Suddenly I'm uphill on gravel. No, this isn't fun. Like, it's not good, right? And so you start having those internal conversations with yourself. Like, I don't think I can make it a mile. What, how terrible am I? Like, they're going to laugh at me for the rest of my college career if I pull up a lane. So you're thinking, all right, how, how believable can I be on faking a hamstring right now? What would, that, what would that look like? Like, all those internal conversations are happening. And suddenly in the distance, I see... A, a road sign. Now, we're on a stretch of road that doesn't have road signs. It's just, it's like the Autobahn. Do whatever you want to do, right? It's a backwoods. So as we're running towards it, I see the sign. And I say to myself, no matter what happens, I'm making it to that sign. And when I make it to that sign, I'm giving myself permission to quit. Okay? And so I start running towards that sign. Now, here's the crazy thing. When my mind focused on that sign, I no longer thought about my side. I no longer remembered the shin splints in my legs. I noticed no longer what I was running on or the elevation that it was. I was just determined to get to that sign. And one of the greatest moments in the history of my life to this day is when my foot literally got beside that sign. The guy yelled out of the window, Miles up, Larson, get on in. Praise be to God Almighty, right? <laughs> now, here's the thing. I tell that funny because, you know, ha-ha me, I can't run, and I can't. But when I got in, I noticed that the sign was a intersection sign. Okay? You know what an intersection sign is? It's a cross. And that day, when I got back to my apartment on campus, I read Hebrews 12. And I thought about my life and how many times I fix my eyes on the elevation of what I'm running, the shin splints, the pain in my side, the circumstances of my life. When all along, all I'm asked to do is to fix my eyes on Jesus. And to trust him and to believe in him and to follow him. Even if the shin splints don't go away and the side doesn't stop hurting even if it means my life is taken because of following him, I win. Because he wins. And so my question to you today is, what are you focusing on? What are you fixing your eyes on instead of Jesus? Let's pray together.